This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. There's nothing more urgent than the devastating impact of COVID-19 on long-term care. Nursing home residents make up nearly half of the entire virus-related death toll throughout the country. It's happened very close to home for us here at the Zoomerplex. One of our colleagues, Des Tierney, lost his dad who died in a local long-term care home recently. The closest he could get to his father was by looking at him through an outside window, which magnifies the tragedy of what's happening. CARP, a new vision of aging, has just conducted a poll on long-term care, and it shows that most CARP members think our governments are doing a poor job. Libby Snymer was joined by Fightback's Monday Zoomer Squad to discuss the results. Peter Mugridge, senior editor at Zoomer Magazine. David Kravitz, vice president at Zoomer Media. And Marissa Lennox, CARP's chief policy officer. In moments like this, what, in bro- what is broken in our society really gets revealed for what it is. And in many ways, long-term care has been exposed and sort of laid bare for all. And we're starting to see that, you know, many of these deaths were predictable. Um, We saw figures coming from across the world, Spain, France, Belgium, that showed half of deaths were happening in these homes. Moreover, we knew the vulnerabilities. We knew how this virus presented itself, how it impacted people with with comorbidities, and as well, uh, you know, at the impact that it would have on people in close proximity. And so the question really uh, is, were our long-term care homes just an afterthought for our elected officials? David? Well, I think that the, um, the problem does go back several administrations. There's been chronic underfunding. We've been, CARP has been, uh, and recently Marissa has been leading the charge on this, uh, calling out the lack of adequate staffing, the lack of regulations that permit uh, people uh, on the staff to work in multiple homes carrying the infection uh, with them from place to place. Um, and I think this has scared everybody. It was interesting in our survey, 80% of the respondents were not in a long-term care home um, and did not have a loved one in a long-term care home, but we're all shocked And I think that's the kind of shock it is. It may be something I'm not immediately thinking about. Am I ever going to be in there? Do I have a loved one going to be in there? But you kind of think it's there in the background, just there when you need it, and it'll be okay somehow. You don't look into it too closely. And then suddenly this happens. And you start saying, well, how many buildings have one washroom for 25 people, and aren't they, you know, Petri dishes for infection even without COVID-19. Who's regulating this? Who's controlling what the buildings look like, what the staffing look like? Maybe this whole system that I kind of sort of think is there, you know, ticking in the background in case I need it. What if the whole thing is is teeth? There are new standards that are being put in place for nursing homes, but the bottom line is, uh, and, and, you know, I... Different, I guess, different governments 
are at different levels of trying to implement that, but you, you have to build those new places and, and uh, you can't get them online fast enough. They have no. to be built. And then there's the question of funding and who's spending, spending what, Peter? Yeah, um, I mean, in in Quebec, the the premier basically threw up his hands and called in the army. You know, like he he didn't have any so immediate solutions, and uh, so it, that that's the kind of situation we've got to. And 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 one of the things that um, everyone in the poll seemed to agree was that um, do you think there are enough staff to provide proper care for residents in long in long term care? Ninety four percent said no. And that's something everyone has known forever, and it's um, it's now it's now coming to bear. Well, and it's not only in Ontario where we see staffing shortages; it's right across the country. There really are no minimum standards for staffing in our long-term care facilities from coast to coast to coast, and this is something uh, that really has impacted our response to long-term care, or our response to COVID-19, rather, in long-term care homes. Um, we're seeing it with the stories that come out daily. Um, just the, the shortage of staffing in these homes is, is not enough. It's just not sufficient to meet the needs of people there. And we knew this before the pandemic hit, and now it's been exacerbated by a pandemic. So, you know, CARP has long advocated for the need to really value the care workers in these homes more by paying them more. Um, and this will certainly go a long way to helping sort of commit to eradicating resident harm in these homes because when there isn't enough staff, the fact of the matter is resident needs get neglected. It's as simple as that. And so this is a huge part of the problem that governments just have really failed to address. It's going to get worse because, you know, you can debate uh, public, private, luxury, middle, different price points, different facilities. But the fact is undeniable that as people are living longer, the need for long-term care facilities of some type or another uh, is only going to increase. David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media, Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, our Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Is our democracy on hold during the pandemic? MPs have finally come to an agreement about how often and how to sit. But it's an agreement made without the opposition conservatives. Are the minority Trudeau liberals receiving enough oversight while they spend more money than ever and assert the prerogatives of an emergency? Our Tuesday strategy panel joined Libby to debate this issue. Charles Byrd, managing principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor and current CEO at Variety Village. And John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner, Fleischmann Hillard High Road. The issue that, that Andrew Shearer is facing, you know, this whole issue of wanting to keep a government to account, uh, a lot of Canadians would agree with that. But I also think that we're in uncertain and unprecedented times now where the Prime Minister does have and was given some powers to be able to make uh, policies and legislation for the sake of time, because no one, no one, we don't have a lot of time with, with respect to money distribution. Um, and I think that, you know, Andrew Shearer coming back saying that we should have four uh, meetings, uh, Parliament uh, a week versus uh, versus the one that was being proposed 
might have been a bit of an overstep. And, and then he ultimately went back to three, then to two, and then obviously the, the, the government, the opposi- other opposition parties, ended up voting to have the one. Um, and I think it might have might have stung the and uh, and and the opposition party on that particular move. I'm sure you've all seen the editorial in the Globe and Mail today saying democracy is an essential service. And like uh, the editorial board at the Globe, I'm wondering, so you have grocery clerks who make at or uh, slightly above minimum wage. They're going to work and exposing themselves. You have healthcare workers who are certainly endangering themselves. You have parliament, which I would think socially distanced parliament. I'm familiar with that big building that it is certainly not one of the most uh, dangerous workplaces anywhere. You know, why can't they go to work, Karen? Yeah, I, I agree with you, Libby. And, and I think that um, it, it is, as we work through the emergency, and I, I think that it was appropriate that certain powers get divested to the prime minister. But as we move along, I think it becomes more and more important that the opposition does have a role to play because we all can agree that we are in very, we're in uncharted territories now. And once we get through the public health crisis, there's going to be a lot of issues that this country needs to work through in terms of economic stimulation, um, how we work with our trading partners, what does the new globe look like in terms of cooperation. And there's, those are big issues. And those issues need to be debated because we have never dealt with them on a strategic level in the way that we're going to have to deal with them now. And we need a, a robust and vibrant opposition. And at some point, and, and I give Andrew Scheer credit because he understands what his role is, and he's not been an obstructionist in this process at all. He's been very willing to work with the government in making sure that uh, Canadians are safe. But as we move into this, you know, as we move through this process, we're going to have very different conversations, and we need a strong voice and a strong opposition. And, and I don't think it's too much to expect that they can go to work because it can be demonstrated, to your point, that they can do that safely. Charles? Well, I thought the Globe editorial was just full of it. I mean, there's one line that really stood out for me, and, and it, the line read, if it's safe for MPs to meet in person on Wednesdays, why not Tuesdays and Thursdays too? And the reality is it's not safe to meet any day, right? But obviously there's a fundamental premise of our democratic institutions continuing to function and providing some degree of accountability. Um, but it's it, it's it's just a false argument on the part of the Globe and Mail, and I was really disappointed by it. And it also lacks some basic truths, such as the fact that um, the House will sit virtually every Tuesday and in person every Wednesday. On May 7th, a third sitting will be added on Thursdays. The House is going to sit in committee of the whole format, which was with complete agreement of all parties including the Conservatives. And that means instead of the the rigid structures that are imposed by, you know, typical House dealings around question period where people are limited to 30 seconds and question period is basically 45 minutes long, Committee of the Whole will provide two full hours a day for opposition members to ask questions of the Prime Minister and ministers that are present. And it will not limit them to 30 seconds. It will actually be much more in a committee format. And so reasonable accommodation has been made with regards to making sure that our federal parliament can continue to function. And the other bit of hypocrisy is, why aren't we seeing the same line of attack being used against Doug Ford at Queen's Park? Why shouldn't Queen's Park be sitting every day? And why shouldn't every provincial legislature be sitting every day? And the truth is, it's not safe. It is not safe for people to gather. Why do you think the message throughout this piece has been stay at home? 
Charles Bird, managing principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Karen Stins, former Toronto City Councillor and current CEO of Variety Village. And John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner at Fleischmann Hillard High Road. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It turns out some family doctors are among small business owners facing ruin because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Word from the Ontario Medical Association is that almost half of primary care workers in this province are at risk of having to close their practices because doctors are unable to pay their expenses. The crisis has forced many doctors to turn to virtual health care as a means to continue delivering their services. And while the provincial PCs at Queen's Park have added new billing codes allowing them to be paid for this, they won't be able to receive the money until June or July. And while the doctors are eligible for loans, they say they won't be able to make up the revenue that they're losing now. Libby Snymer was joined by Dr. Sohel Gandhi, president of the Ontario Medical Association, and Dr. Neil Maharaj, who practices in Niagara Falls. Both family doctors and specialists are affected uh, by the lack of payment. So we, um, I'm one of two respirologists in our region, um, and we, uh, unfortunately, when COVID uh, struck, we had to make some pretty abrupt changes to our practice, as, as did many doctors. In addition to our clinic, we have a, a breathing laboratory where we assess patients. And so I had plans of hiring uh, another employee, which actually I offered a position, but that had to be put on hold. And I've also had to unfortunately lay off a very valuable employee uh, to our clinic uh, because we just don't have the volumes. The remaining two employees that we have in our clinic have are now on reduced hours um, just because, again, the volume of patients has dramatically uh, dropped. Uh, I've been providing virtual uh, care visits uh, both uh, in in hospital and in my clinic, Um, but uh, the crunch financially is really starting to to show. Again, um, many physicians, specialists, and family doctors have significant overhead costs. We have equipment, so there's leases associated with that. Uh, there's uh, payroll for employees. And so all of this is getting affected, and it's really, it's, it's very troublesome. Dr. Gandhi, so finally, I guess the government came up with a billing code for virtual visits, but now you're learning that uh, the computers won't be updated till June or July. Yeah, so we made an agreement with the government in good faith on March 14th, and we recognize the need for our physicians to practice physical distancing, particularly in our own offices where we have a large number of very sick and oftentimes elderly uh, people who are at the highest risk for infection with COVID-19. And so in good faith, we made the agreement with the Ministry of Health on March 14th and said, okay, we'll transform our practices to a virtual environment as much as possible. And, you know, overnight, it was like a switch being thrown across the provinces where family physicians' offices, specialist offices, all very, very quickly adapted to this new model that we had an agreement for and made the changes that were necessary. And the changes that we're starting to see, actually, you know, there's a glimmer of hope now, all of this stuff that we've done seems to be flattening the curve. It's too early to, to stop all the treatment, all the physical distancing just yet, but it seems to be working. So we did all the right things. 
But then to be told by the bureaucrats that, oh, by the way, uh, we can't program the computers in time because, you know, they're really old and it takes a long time to program them. So you might not get paid until June or July. Well, well that's just a failure of the bureaucracy. Uh, the, the bureaucrats have really let uh, the physicians down. They've let the health minister down. I mean, I, I'll be candid. I, I rather like uh, Christine Elliott. I think she's doing a very good job overall. She's probably the best health minister we've had since Elizabeth Whitmer. But her, her bureaucrats have really let her down, and they've left uh, let the physicians of the province down by not being on the ball. Uh, Dr. Maharaj, anything you'd like to leave us with? I think, um, you know, to uh, the income stabilization, as, as the government has framed it uh, in the form of uh, a loan, really is quite problematic for all the reasons it mentioned. You know, many of uh, my patients, for example, are elderly with complex needs. I, uh, you know, they require time and care, and to try and ramp that up, so to speak, in the eyes of a, of a bureaucrat is just, again, uh, reflective of a complete lack of understanding. I really am hopeful that the government will uh, correct course on this. Uh, thousands and thousands of Ontario's patients are, are, are at risk for this, uh, and I, I know doctors, my colleagues, um, we're working as hard as we can uh, in light of these financial constraints, in light of our own personal health constraints, too. We're dealing with issues around PPE shortages, and so it's, it's a very, very stressful time for us in trying to make sure that nothing gets uh, missed for our patients. So I'm optimistic and, I, and uh, I'm hopeful, but uh, something really has to change quickly. Dr. Neil Maharaj, who practices in Niagara Falls, and Dr. Sohail Gandhi, president of the Ontario Medical Association. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. This past Monday, we in Ontario received some hopeful news about the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. It looks like we are at the peak, at least in the community, although there is no let-up yet in the devastation in long-term care homes. To discuss what this means to us as residents of Ontario, Libby was joined on Tuesday by Dr. Adam Kassam, a Toronto-based psychiatrist and public health expert. There is some cautious optimism, of course, in the medical community with these numbers. And I think even today, for example, there was continued good news. I think the province reported uh, the smallest one-day jump uh, of new cases. So the number of new cases over the past 24 hours uh, was 4.5% increase from the day before, which represents 552 new cases. So that number is still quite large, but the percentage of that number change um, is actually the lowest it's ever been since we've been counting. So I think that there is some reason to be optimistic, but as we kind of talked about before, you know, we're still very much in the early innings of this ball game. So we need to keep our foot on the gas, make sure that we're diligent and vigilant uh, moving forward. But there is some good good news right now. Can you explain to me what the reproductive rate is? I think I, I think that's the measure of how many uh, infections one infected person leads to. Is am I right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's sort of a population ecology and demographic kind of uh, number. But yeah, it's, it's used to represent sort of the, uh, the, the number of people that would be infected by an individual. So if, for example, um, I were to go out and infect, let's say, two people based on my interaction throughout the day, uh, then that's sort of a, a higher R, R0, R0 number. And so 
Um, this is a very important measure because it is kind of the metric that epidemiologists used to look at exponential growth. And um, right now, we're, of course, seeing that number be pretty low because of the sort of distancing measures that are in place. And I think that in Canada, of course, and certainly in Ontario, what we have is sort of a luxury of perhaps a bit more space than other highly dense or uh, highly sort of occupied areas, so high-density areas, um, metropolises around the, around the world, for example, who have suffered a different fate. So we're thinking about places like, of course, New York City is, is a prime example. One of the measures that I saw talked about is the percentage of tests that come back positive. Do you know how we're doing with that? Yeah, so I, I don't know the latest numbers, Libby, but I do remember that there was some concern about false and negative percentage of cases. So I think that number is somewhere between 20 and 30 percent. Now, that's a pretty high number, and I don't know if that's still accurate as of today. But that means that 30 percent of people who would have come back with a negative test were actually potentially positive. So that's a number that we need to to really reduce, right? Because if we're basing our numbers on these tests and the way that they are reported and the accuracy of the tests, then a 30% false negative rate is actually not very good. While we were preparing, we cleared space in hospital by sending uh, patients who were there just waiting for a nursing home bed to nursing homes. And right now we have a big problem in nursing homes and less so in the hospitals. What's your view of that? Yeah, so I think that there are perhaps two parallel stories about COVID that are going on right now. So when you look at the hospitals, which were restructured or reorganized in order to make capacity for any possible surge that we saw, uh, has been actually very successful. We see that the obviously the, the ICU numbers are quite low and that there is adequate capacity. So for example, the, the province's numbers on that are that right now there are about 687 available ICU beds um, with an additional capacity of, of, no, of close to 1,500 beds um, from our baseline. So we are actually in a very good position from an ICU perspective. But as you already alluded to, there is the flip side of the coin, which is that places like nursing homes and long-term care facilities have seen exponential rises in their not only infection rates, but unfortunately also death rates. And so there are, as you said, parallel stories here. And, and that is some cause for concern because you know, these are patients, of course, uh, who are especially vulnerable. But I'll, I'll also add that, you know, the the capacity that we have in the hospitals, which has been significant, does have an effect out in the community, right? And so people who would have otherwise been going in for elective surgeries, and we have to remember that elective surgeries, while they're called elective, that doesn't mean that they're unnecessary. They're actually very necessary. It's just that they're not emergencies. And so they have knock-on effects. So, for example, if you're waiting and which, you know, is sort of a hallmark of our system. If you've been waiting, let's say, six months or seven months for a knee operation, and all of a sudden now you have to wait another five or six months because of what's been going on, now you're living in pain for another six or seven months. And so these are knock-on effects of this reorganization. And I think that there is now perhaps a start of a conversation to figure out whether or not we can get back into sort of a normal, uh, you know, delivery of healthcare, at least at the, at the, at the hospital level. Dr. Adam Kassim, a Toronto-based psychiatrist and public health expert. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. 
There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Norma in Mississauga, who called us twice. First to say she was very concerned about the health and safety of her brother, whose roommate at Eatonville Care Center died with COVID-19. Norma later called to say, as a result of telling her story on Fight Back, which also got the attention of CARP, her brother is receiving much better care. I received a call on Monday evening that says, from the executive director, that says she will follow up, and the first thing she will do is to get someone to shave him, because that was the worst part of his condition. And I just received another call now from Eatonville Charge Nurse who said he is up in the chair after four weeks in bed. And she says he is in good spirit because he's now able to look out the window. So I just want to say thanks so very much because I don't think anything would have been done for my brother if I had not brought it to the attention of your show. So at least I know he's looking partly like a human being and he's not positive. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.